Welcome to Series 3 of Inquire, the Investor Relations Podcast. In this series, we are speaking with senior portfolio managers to explore their view of investor relations, what constitutes best practice in corporate communication, and learning more about how companies can optimise their dialogue with their shareholders. In today's interview, I am delighted to be joined by Jeremy Thomas. Jeremy started his career in the army, and since then, he's been a portfolio manager for 27 years across a number of institutions, starting at Schroeder's, including spending nearly 12 years at Alliance Global Investors, before moving to Saracen and Partners seven years ago, where he is now the Chief Investment Officer for Global Equities. Welcome to the Inquire podcast, Jeremy, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Clara. Pleasure to be with you. I'd like to start by understanding a bit more about Saracen and your background. So let's start if you can tell us a little bit about your firm and your approach to investment. Yes, of course. Yeah. So Saracen is a specialist asset management boutique. We're structures of partnership and we were founded in 1983. We currently manage around 18 billion of assets. Our typical clients are charities. We're one of the leading charity managers in the UK, private clients and institutions, mostly in the UK, but we do have clients around the world. Our investment philosophy is founded in our thematic framework, but we also rely heavily on stewardship and an ownership mindset when we're dealing with companies. So our approach really emphasizes ESG integration, responsible investing, and close engagement with the companies we invest in. We've got a single core investment process for equities, and that builds up thematic active equity portfolios. Typically, our portfolios will only be 35 to 50 stocks. And overall, the firm employs 250 people, all based in one office in London, and around 20 of that team are investors on the global equity team. Right. And we'll come on to talk a little bit more about how you screen companies in in a bit. Let's talk first about some of the current market challenges, particularly Mm -hmm. in the UK. So I'm interested in what's the biggest challenge for you as an equity portfolio manager today, and maybe how that compares to 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah. So I think it probably doesn't matter whether you're in the UK or global. Just the sheer availability of information and data and the speed that the market reacts to news is in some ways terrifying, certainly versus 20 years ago, you know, 10 years or so ago, really the the internet, the dissemination of information and the whole approach to to media changed dramatically. You know, when I first started, corporate email and BlackBerry were were completely new. And to have one, a BlackBerry or, or to have access to email outside of the firm was seen as a privilege not really an expectation. It wasn't really a work tool. So now we have this huge risk of information overload. You know, and I feel for us to make money today in these markets react so quickly, you've got to anticipate change, not just respond to it. So back in the old days, you could see something happen, you can interpret it, you could change your portfolio and you could move forward and wait for the next piece of information or news. Now you've really got to figure out what the three or four things that are really important are that drive an investment outcome. Some of those can be short-term catalysts, but I think that's really difficult to do consistently. So really, we focus on building out a portfolio of companies that are aligned to themes or some ideas about where the world is going over the long run. So things like digitalization, the impact of demographics of climate change, and then also try and invest in resilient companies that can prosper in a wide range of outcomes. So we shouldn't always just be looking at the news and waiting to hear something about our companies. We ought to be able to have some faith or belief that our companies can cope with a changing outcome. And we must recognise that predicting the future really never gets any easier for anyone. 
Delving into the themes in a bit more detail, can I ask you about your view on artificial intelligence? As that comes up in meetings with investors currently, regardless of the sector of the company we're advising. So within themes, we would think of artificial intelligence around digitalization and automation, and it really spans those two huge themes. And it's making us think a bit more about automation, whereas when we first conceived of automation as a big theme, we really talked about replacing people with physical machines. So you know, like the printing press was back in the day, robots, robotics, and so on. But clearly, artificial intelligence is allowing us to begin to automate things which are digital flows. So it spans both digitalization and automation. We've seen hype cycles and things in the past. And you know, it wasn't long ago we were very excited or some were very excited about the metaverse. We think artificial intelligence is much more powerful than that. You know, I use a tool like perplexity.ai, which is a hybrid really of ChatGPT and Claude. And I use that all the time for doing research now. So less and less Google, more and more about putting things into perplexity and trying to get a richer and better answer. But it's going to be used for all sorts of things by us and by our companies. And then there's the huge investment opportunity it's providing today. So a huge theme and likely to be so for the next 10 or 20 years. And really just comes back to this point about long-term themes. You know, we think just like the mobile phone, just like the internet, Back in the day, the telephone, canals, railways, we think artificial intelligence in its broadest form, generative AI today, is one of those foundational disruptive technologies that will create new industries and destroy old industries. So it's a super important theme, we think. Just to stay on, on the market currently, so you're a UK-based investor with a global remit. What are your current views on the UK equity market? Do you foresee a recovery and a re-rating relative to overseas markets, or are there more structural issues at play in the UK? Yeah, so we do invest in the UK, uh, based in the UK. We're actually very close, our offices, to the London Stock Exchange. And last week, I spent some of my week at the LSEG Investor Day. So we take a close interest in, in the UK. But just for context, and many of your listeners will know this, the UK, if you take MSCI Acqui, so that's the sort of broadest benchmark for a global investor, most of our funds our customers look at our performance against MSCI Acqui. The UK, I'm sorry to say, is just 3.5% of MSCI Acqui today. In our portfolios, we've got five or six stocks, individual stocks that have a bigger weighting than the UK has in that index. So that's the sort of starting point, and that's challenge. But we do think the UK index is cheap. I mean, even at the headline level, 10 to 11 times earnings, 4% dividend yield, even adjusting for the sector makeup, so we've got quite a lot of banks and mining companies, oil companies, which tend to be lower valuation businesses globally. Even adjusting for that, the UK does look pretty cheap. But in a hypothetical world in which it saw a 50% re-rating against the rest of the world index, it would still only be 5% of the global index. So you can afford to ignore it, but we wouldn't. We think, you know, for us building, like I said earlier, 35 to 50 stock portfolio, but really, we're looking at the UK as a market of stocks, not just a stock market. So there's opportunities. And if we can find four or five great companies in the UK that are attractive relative to other global opportunities, even in similar industries, you know, that's how we look to exploit the relative value opportunity of the UK. And we do think that the overall depressing impact on the index, you know, for whatever reason that is, and we can talk about some of those impacts, is providing opportunities in specific companies. So we do hold UK stocks and we hold more of a weighting in our portfolio in the UK than perhaps that very low weighting that an MSCI benchmark might suggest. And I don't know if it came up explicitly at the Capital Markets Day at Elsa, mm. but obviously the UK markets lost a number of listings such as CRH, Ferguson and Arm to the US market yeah. in the very recent past. 
can you still see advantages to UK listing against listing in overseas markets? Yeah, so I think there's two stages. First of all, does a company want to be listed at all? So this trend of de-equitization of companies leaving the stock market, not being replaced, you know, whether that's them going private, being bid for, being bid for by overseas companies, that's been going on for a very long period of time. And in part, that's driven by super low interest rates, because that's allowed private market participants to find the opportunity to finance businesses at low rates or, in fact, buy businesses from the listed market. So that, that's the first thing. But let's assume a company does want to be listed today. Where does it list? And I think for a purely domestic business, it does make sense for them to list in their home market. And you mentioned Ferguson. Ferguson does all of its business in North America today, as I'm sure you know. Probably makes sense for that business to consider the US as its home market in terms of what it actually does. That said, the UK, I think, is still the sixth largest venue in the world. So whilst it seems small, there are lots of other very small stock markets around the world. The issue, I think, probably is the lack of momentum of new IPOs. So attracting companies when they do list, and fewer and fewer companies do seem to list, to see the UK as a place that they want to list. And I think there is a perception of low valuations. So companies that are listing are trying to get value for listing their shares, get a lower valuation, they might think in the UK, and also flows out of the UK. So less and less people are investing in the UK specifically, they do so within a European or a global portfolio. So there's a little bit of a risk of a negative spiral. Now, one of the presentations at the LSEG Capital Markets Day was from Julia Hoggett, who we've got to know reasonably well at Saracen. She's the CEO of the London Stock Exchange, not of the overall LSEG business. And she's clearly leading London and spearheading the industry and and trying to get business together to really support the health of the UK market and recognise the importance of the city to the UK economy. You know, lots of initiatives, level playing, listing rules, reforming corporate governance, trying to provide cheaper or free access to research, roll back some of those MIFID reforms that we might remember from our time when we were in Europe, and then encourage domestic investors to commit capital. Retail participation in the UK is incredibly low by comparison with the US, for example. But ultimately, I think whilst the UK can do a lot, the issue really is the attraction of the US market or the strengths of the US market. It's amazing, really. And and this has happened quite quickly because of the strength of the Magnificent Seven, these seven big companies really driving the US market. That broad MSCI Acqui benchmark is now 60%, nearly 60% in the US. And if you're on the MSCI world, which doesn't include emerging markets, that's 70% in the US. So the MSCI world is beginning to look like a regional benchmark dominated by the US with some very big listed weightings at the top. And the US has become really that venue for global technology because people understand it. That's where the liquidity is. That's where the liquidity is growing. That's where you get the highest valuations. And that just makes it quite difficult for me, I think, to criticize ARM for deciding that the US was the right place to list as a global business. So I'm sure we'll do plenty to try and really champion the London Stock Exchange and the importance of the UK. But much of it, I think, is really about whether you want to be listed. And if so, why wouldn't you list in the US, given all of its attractions? So as a global investor, your investable universe is is huge. Can you Mm. share some more colour around how you screen companies that merit closer analysis? Yeah, I mean, there's at least 3,000 companies we could invest in just in the benchmark and probably another 5,000 outside. And we do invest in companies that aren't in the benchmark. We're not slaves to the benchmark at all, holding around 40 companies in a typical portfolio. We've mentioned themes and we use our themes really to drive the way we build up an investable universe. So we're trying to find companies that are related to the themes that we think are really going to drive opportunity for companies to grow revenues over the next 10 or, or 20 years as the world increasingly changes and disrupts. 
As we build out that investable universe, we can typically get that down to six or 700 companies. We then put on top of that a screening process. And our screening process isn't just dumping data into a spreadsheet and sorting it by you know, the PE ratio or something like that. It's really trying to dig into the sort of companies that we think might be successful in getting through our process and work in our portfolios. And we use some rudimentary machine learning. So our quant on the team, our colleague of mine, Angel Ganchev, does a lot of work to try and optimize how we screen and bring ideas forward. In that process, there's a lot of data involved. But then after that, that becomes a sort of quantitative view of the screening tells us these companies are interesting. But what do we know about these companies and what really makes them stand out? And I think you know, everything a company publishes, everything a company does can draw our attention to some of the companies the screen throws up. And when we're looking to get to know companies better, quick look at their investor presentation. Quite often, the first thing I do when I first look at a company is just Google company name, investor presentation, see if it pops up, see if it's helpful. You know, if it's just the second quarter earnings slides and there's only 10 of them and it doesn't really bring to life what the company does, that's a hurdle. If it brings up a standard investor presentation, who are we? What are the themes we're related to? Why do we grow? Why are we great? At least I can in 10, 15 minutes get a sense as to whether that company is of interest and might work for us. So I think there's plenty companies can do to try and put themselves in our shoes and, and try and just make themselves shine in a very competitive world. That's really encouraging to hear because I've been learning a lot from speaking to fund managers over the last few weeks about how automated the process is. So it's good to hear that there is value still in IR telling a compelling equity story alongside the... Yeah, as we said before, keep the human in the loop. Exactly. So as an IR professional, I'm really interested in some of the differences you might see between IR practices in the UK and overseas and any learnings potentially that UK IR teams could take from other markets. Yeah, maybe I would say this, but I think UK is very much up there with best practice. We very rarely come across a UK company that we're serious about investing in where we think IR lets the side down. I think the US is also incredibly strong. And typically, those companies are very well resourced. And possibly the US really gets this point about communications and brand more broadly. Some UK companies, I think, don't necessarily know quite so well how to appeal, but that's quite a media-orientated US market with many thousands of companies all, all shouting for voice. And I think Europe is also pretty strong. The laggards for us tend to be Asia and Japan, but even there, reforms are changing. There's huge amounts of change in Tokyo. Tokyo Stock Exchange reforms are really driving investor relations. So I think the world over, the value and importance of investor relations is growing. And I think doing investor relations well increasingly has a payback and is, is very important to us, much more important than it was when I started investing. Yeah, absolutely. It's- is the strategic importance, I think, of IR has developed quite significantly over, particularly since MIFID II in, in Europe. Yeah. And I think the UK leads on, on ESG and disclosure. In many cases, it's very rare that we will go out to our companies looking for improved disclosure and the UK would be a laggard, almost never. But also, I think worth bearing in mind, our approach is quite concentrated. So we're only looking at any one time at five or 10 companies in the UK, probably. So we don't necessarily have the best perspective of what best practice looks like market by market it's much easier for us to tell you perhaps where the comparisons are company by company. And how much do you use the sell side? And again, interested in any differences between the quality or use of sell side research in the UK versus overseas? Yeah, we're global. So we're thinking about doing our our research globally and we do use the sell side. We've got about 30 hand-picked research companies that we use and we use them all for a specific reason. So back in the day when commissions paid for research and the whole incentive structure was different. And I think MIFID's changed this for the better. 
it was sort of all you can eat from everyone and it was sort of provided on the basis that hopefully you would trade with them now that's different we're essentially buying research like we would buy any other professional service and we have to make sure that we can get value from that or we wouldn't pay for it or at least our cfo wouldn't pay for it that's for sure I think the quality varies actually less and less as the big banks dominate and the smaller research houses with find it more difficult. So, you know, you've really got big banks competing against each other and set the standards globally. So that's improving the larger part of the market. The issue, of course, is small caps and, and whether they can get the quality of coverage, whether the people providing that research can really put a viable business together to provide it. We think there are some excellent sell-side analysts. Hopefully, we get to know them pretty well. They're really helpful for understanding companies. They're also very helpful for us for understanding the discussion they have with other investors. So quite often, we'll sit with sell-side research analysts and try and understand the controversies, what other people are talking about, and how we might weight the probabilities within those controversies. So they become experts, not just on the company and the industry, but also how the market operates and sees the four or five things that really matter in any particular investment case. The only thing I would say is they're no more likely to be right than anyone else. So we do take their recommendations with some interest, but of course we have to form our own views. Yeah, it's interesting. I think from speaking to fund managers recently, there's more value attributed to sell side than maybe IR teams, I think, have been attributing to the sell side. I think from an investor relations professional sort of standpoint, we've seen a real decline in engagement from the sell side. The analysts we interact with covering more stocks and a lot more reactive notes coming out rather than the thought leadership that I maybe had 10 years ago when I sort of started out in, in the profession. So it's interesting to see how valuable it still is to your investment process. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of very experienced analysts the sell side have kept, and we know many of them. I think, you know, that always there is pressure on their budgets. So I think in some places you've seen a sort of juniorization of analysts and perhaps become less experienced. But it does, I think, it is the case that there's less and less experience on the sell side just because the budgets available for buying those analysts in seem to be shrinking the whole time. So that only increases the importance of IR to us and, and getting to know the companies and forming our own view. And the UK is the only country to have the role of corporate broking. So how mm. does this change your relationship with your portfolio companies in the UK compared to other markets? Yeah, I haven't thought about the importance of corporate broking very much because it doesn't, I don't think, make that much of a difference to us. I mean, there's historic reasons, there's regulatory reasons why they exist in the UK. And I'm sure there's some terrific people providing great advice to companies and, and helping and supporting IR. But we just generally view them as conflicted advisors to the company, which is fine. And they perform a function. And that's that's absolutely great. And if they can get us access to companies and if they can help us meet companies, then that's all good for us. But they're sort of part of the banking part of a bank, if you like, rather than the investment research part of a bank. Our preference is to have a direct relationship with IR at the companies we invest in. Yes, the brokers have a role, particularly when you come to things like fundraising, when you think about UK market abuse regulations, the MAR regulations and so on, that can be a factor. But we don't really see a particular difference in the way that we interact with IR or with banks in non-UK markets versus the UK because of that corporate broking setup. Interesting and valuable comments there about the role of IR, particularly when it comes to getting feedback. I think it's a really valuable tool for IR teams to have direct access to investors' feedback to feed up to the board. Um, so it's a good to hear your comments supporting <laughs> that direct dialogue between companies. Yeah, and we're very happy to give feedback direct to a company. 
never shy about that. So we always get asked, you know, give your feedback. It will be on an unattributable, you know, anonymous basis. And no, it's fine. This is our feedback. Feel free to tell the company, or you are the company, we'll tell you. So we'll, we'll give feedback to brokers or the company, but we're also very happy to participate in investor perception studies and so on as you really IR teams try to build up an understanding of how their business is, is viewed. And just on the broker relationship more broadly, in an IPO situation, a lot of companies don't hire IR right up until the sort of very intention to flow has been session and the IPO is imminent. Would it be more helpful to have IR involved earlier in that process for pre-IPO companies to interact with IR alongside the bank CTM teams that are leading the transaction? Yes. I mean, I think what would be helpful is if companies were able to interact with investors like us well before the IPO using an investor relations team. What we generally, we don't participate in very many IPOs because they're essentially a competitive auction with everyone looking at the company based on the same information at the same time. And yes, there's always a shortage of shares available for the best IPOs. We get a relatively small allocation. The stock jumps in the post-IPO market and we're forced to buy more shares at higher prices. It doesn't really suit our approach. I think we'd be more interested in learning about the company in the three months before float rather than having that sort of competitive time pressure six weeks. So IPO is generally not a thing for us. So next, I'm interested in your views around best practice in corporate reporting. Hmm. And you've talked about this already, that everyone I'm speaking to for this series talks about the time constraints they're under. So is there anything else companies should think about when reporting to make your life easier when it comes to understanding the business and financials? Yeah, so having clear, easy to find materials, cut down on the time it takes us to do it. And I always think a company who's got a well-organized investor relations website is probably a well-organized, well-run company. So if it's a jumble, not only is it harder for us, but it also gives an impression. I think the main additional thing is to cut down on the jargon. I think there's many companies that form their own acronyms. And we've all worked in companies where we sort of learn a new language that only applies to that company and then presume people outside the company understand it. And there might be 40 or 50 dedicated investors that know that company really well and have got used to it. You know, I think of something like Nestle has this thing called RIG, which is apparently real internal growth, which is a sort of proxy for an adjusted revenue growth rate for the company. And I know that because I've met Nestle a few times, but the first time around, that's a little frustrating. But it's even more frustrating when it's used as an acronym through all of the materials without explaining it. So quite often, we will delve into different parts of the materials produced by a company, not necessarily in the order it was set out. So it's not like reading an article where the acronym is explained at the beginning and then presumed right the way through. We don't read documents like that. So either don't do it, cut down on the acronyms, or you have to constantly remind us what they actually stand for and why you use them. And can you talk a little bit about what you focus on when reviewing companies' written communications? So anything else you can share around what you might look for in presentations, maybe the balance between forward and backward looking data, and also annual reports. I'm interested in how much you might attention you pay to an annual report. Yeah, so yes, we review and use everything that we think is useful. Quite often, we don't read it the way you might assume. So often it's in PDF and we're putting keywords in. So the search box is going to try and find things that we want inside the presentation documents. I think that there's always a, a challenge with any presentation as to whether you have lots of words and great pictures or a bit of each and, and trying to make them intelligible to us to read or whether they really need explaining and being spoken about. So I think that's always quite important to consider. You know, I think 
it's important for companies to explain when there's something that they cannot and will not disclose. So we're not always going back to the company and saying, we want this number, we want this number. I mean, I think if it's competitively problematic, or you're going to be clear that with all investors, that number doesn't get disclosed, don't disclose it at all, and don't have the sort of smoke and mirrors that you know we sometimes meet other analysts and they say, well, the company seems to be saying the margin's nine, but they don't publish it anywhere. But they said it's between eight and 10 and near the middle and, and so on. That, that can be a little bit frustrating. So consistency, clarity, realism all helps. And don't spin it. You know, it's IR, not PR. Yes, I know PR and communications has a role within a company, but we're just looking for clarity. And then finally, just make sure consensus doesn't get ahead of reality. You know, that's particularly the case when a big transaction's happened, you get pro forma numbers. It's very easy to build a theoretical spreadsheet of what a company will look like after a big transaction. But we know that the theory and the reality are much messier than that. And I think it's a time when you've got to be very careful that we're not just building theoretical spreadsheets and then presuming that's going to be the future. I think we and the sell side need help in understanding that companies are messy and complicated and spreadsheets are just one simplistic view of what you see in the future. And I think for report accounts, yes, there's always a balance between reviewing the past and looking at the future. What we really would like to see from companies is a clear explanation of what the strategy of the business is to maximize value out over the next three to five years. And I don't think that means setting out financial targets saying, you know, revenues will be, margins will be, cash flow will be in five years time. It's more an expression of how the business is going to be run today against a vision that is three or five years into the future and how consistently that is applied. Lots of really interesting points there. And on company investor websites, you've touched on the importance of having easy to access information. Just interested in whether you have time to engage with any digital or video mm-hmm. content. IR teams are always encouraged to innovate in terms of how they're telling the story, but I'm interested in your perspective on that. Yeah, we do use them. I guess the IR teams that publish them, put them on the website have a much better idea about how much they use than I do, because I guess they get the, the viewership numbers. Yeah, I I quite like them. If I'm just trying to understand a business gives me sort of a a quick way to get a look and and feel for a company. I was listening to something the other day, which was suggesting you can get even more value from trying to find presentations from CEOs done at industry conferences rather than IR events, where you can get a real understanding of of 10, 20 minute video of a presentation of a CEO to a sales force or to a customer to understand they're really the character of the CEO, how they present and how they present to non-investors. So um, that's something I'm wanting to do in the future, having heard that that bit of advice. That's really important, I think, for IR teams to be mindful of all the public touch points that the mm-hmm. company management team is represented in. And Capital Markets Day, site visits, is that something you engage with? Yeah. So yes, my team are always asking if they can even travel the world to go to Capital Markets Days. I, th- I think we get good value from them. I sort of look back over my time investing and think about the companies I really got to know best. And I think it was often the companies where I went to their premises or went to their factories or spent the day with them at a capital markets day. And I think it really deepens your understanding and relationship with the business in a way that a sort of one hour meeting in one of our meeting rooms in our office can't do. And as I say, we're very happy to travel and do that. And, and site visits are fantastic. I mean, they're, they're quite fun, you know, going to see whether it's a, a quarry or whether it's a factory or whatever it might be. We quite enjoy a site visit because, you know, often it also comes with access with the next level down of management. And and that for us, not just being reliant on the view, the CEO, CFO, who are generally quite polished and used to dealing with investors to get to the next level of management, to understand the business, but also to see the strength and depth and who might ultimately end up leading and managing that company is, is great for us too. 
Yeah, and it's, it's encouraging to hear that because a huge amount of work goes into organising these events. Yes, I know it does. <laughs> and focusing now on your dialogue with companies and some of your communication preferences, mm. how frequently would you like to meet with your investing companies and any comments around preferred meeting format or content or how to run those meetings? Yeah, it's, it depends on the company, how long we've been invested, whether there's any controversies uh, or anything, some event has happened in, in the life of the company that we feel we want to delve into. So we won't take a meeting unless we think we can get value from it. And we won't take a meeting that we don't prepare for. So we'd be almost embarrassed, I think, to say or let it feel like we've let ourselves down if it's a flip the page meeting. So if the CEO of a company comes in and sits in front of us and we say, well, can you give us a presentation? Then I think we've failed in our well, our respect for the leadership of the business, but also in what we can get out of that time. But we do like to have meetings and we like them to be discussions. And we will vary the meeting depending on who we're seeing. So I think for us, the meeting is different between IR versus CEO versus chair. And we also like to meet the chair and the non-executives as well. And each of those meetings is about understanding a different facet of the company, you know, whether it's strategy with the CEO, functioning at board meetings with the chair, or understanding the financials and how capital's returned to shareholders and what the capital allocation plan is for the CFO. We try and make each of those meetings different and tailor them. And I suppose as part of your ESG integrated approach, do you meet with sustainability teams if the company has one as well? Yeah, we will, for sure. I mean, I think often the right place to start is with IR and, and lay out the questions. And, and we're not really shy to send our questions in written form and say, you know, these are the things we feel we need to understand. Because as I said before, we do our ESG analysis um, very much bottom up. We do that through data, but also through inputs from things that we read and research we do. And, and for our ESG view of a typical company, it's around 400 different data points. If we can't find that data, then we would go to IR and say, we're struggling to find this. And then we would hope either IR would come to us with the answer or would put us in touch with the expert inside the business. So yes, we think the best way to go about it. And any regional differences between different markets that you cover in terms of meeting formats? Not really meeting a company with an interpreter. That's always quite interesting. So you go to Japan and meet a company which, because of the time difference, can be sort of one or two o'clock in the morning. You ask a question, the interpreter asks the question, the executive answers the question, the interpreter tells you the answer to the question. And you've got to look interested and engaged through the whole of that process, keeping your eyes on the CEO who runs this great Japanese business. I think the hardest thing for us really is when we end up in a group meeting with a large number of other investors each with very different agenda. So if you've got a short-term hedge fund who's short the stock versus long-term investors who are thinking about the five-year strategy, those meetings are perhaps more difficult. And, and trying to get groups of investors into the right groups for those group meetings to optimise and be more efficient, I think, is, is the right way to go. Yeah, I'm not sure IR teams always pay enough thought to actually grouping the investors in terms of investment style and remit, but that's a really interesting point. Yeah. And as we wrap up the conversation, if you've got one piece of advice for an investor relations audience for this podcast when they speak to investors, what would that be? I mean, I know investor relations are incredibly busy and there's huge draws on investor relations people's time. Sometimes not even the team. Sometimes I know some business is just one person. But I think do contact us proactively. Offer us meetings, have a conversation, build a relationship with us. Ask us for feedback if there's something that you want. And then when you do get feedback from us, make sure you pass it on to the board, because quite often we will then follow up with the company later and see whether that feedback was discussed and, and where it went. You know, feel free to ask us for our views at the end of a company meeting. You know, In the last 10 minutes or so, open it up into a discussion. We're very happy to do that. And be straight with us. I mean, I really think there's no point. If there's a problem, 
don't disguise it don't skip over it don't pretend it's not there because it will eventually come out and it will only make it worse i think in the long run if we don't have the opportunity to tackle it there and then fantastic advice thank you and finally do you have any questions you would like to ask me yeah, I mean, of course, you know, I can turn the question back to you. You know, what can investors do better to get value from IR, help IR? I'm sure you meet many investors and, and it's, it's not at all uniform what you see. I think the feedback, I'm a big fan of feedback and I'm a big fan of having that direct feedback between either the IR team or at least the company's management team and the investor and ideally cover it off in the meeting itself, but also well, you can always follow up, obviously, with a phone call and bottom out any other questions at the end of or subsequent to the meeting. I think what IR teams don't do enough of is actually ask investors what they're looking for in yeah. terms of communication style, in terms of their presentation formats, in terms of how they're presenting the equity story. So this isn't really a question for you, but it's more just a comment that I think I wish more companies would do that. Even yeah. just for me recording this series of the podcast, I've learned a huge amount that surprised me actually about how you interact with our information, what you value, what you prioritize in terms of your time, how you screen companies. And every investor has a different approach to that. And I, I wish more IR teams to spend time with their large shareholders understanding that, particularly the screening tools that are applied and yeah. what matter and how to present those and make them accessible to investors. So I think there's some learnings here for all of us in investor relations, actually, about feedbacks, not just about what the company's doing and how management are performing, but it's actually about how investors are looking to communicate and everyone has a different nuance to their style and approach. And I think it's really valuable for IR teams to be more aware of that different style between yeah. different investors. And to build on that, we, you know, we think of IR as very much the gatekeepers between us and the company. Obviously, like uh, most long-term fundamental investors, we want to get access to the company and to meet the CEO, CFO and the board and so on. What else can investors do to impress upon the people that run the investor relations function of the company to give us the access that we would like? I've seen some investors recently do events for IR teams, which is actually educating on what they want how they want to interact with companies, how they run the portfolio. So kind of all the things I was just talking about. So would that be a seminar with a group of IR people yeah. together from different yeah. companies? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and IR team's actually really interested in attending those events because particularly you can send team members and they learn a lot about your investment style. So that's a really interesting thing for you to do. The other thing is to ask for feedback the other way as well. So again, we've seen there's one hedge fund in particular, I think had to go on a bit of a PR campaign because they were annoying quite a few companies. And then they noticed that was impacting their access, therefore to management teams and, and the companies themselves. And, and so they did, tried a couple of innovations, but actually they proved really effective. So they sent a feedback survey to companies. By our perception study of fund managers. Yeah, and the other way around. And I think that was really well received to say actually we, you know, we're aware we're not getting access, what can we do differently in terms of how we interact with you? Mm. And so that's quite a nice opportunity. Again, it was just a short form, so it didn't take too much time for IR teams to fill out. But I think that shows a willingness to engage on, on both sides of the equation. And the other thing I think is just a proactive approach to feedback. I think sometimes IR teams are very time poor, very busy, and much as we'd love to be able to follow up you know, day after the meeting, and get your feedback. I've never really had a fund manager pick up the phone to the IR team directly. I've had them contact management when there's a serious issue. But actually, if you have the time to pick up the phone to the IR professional and just say, hey, it was great to meet you yesterday in the management team, just following up on the meeting, I've never seen that. So maybe struggling to get in front of a company that shows some attention to the IR function that I think will be really, really well received. Good advice. Thank you.
Jeremy, thank you very much for joining me on Inquire and for sharing your insights and perspectives on companies' communications with investors. Thanks very much for having me, Clara. It was um, a terrific discussion. Really enjoyed it. And thank you for joining Inquire, the Investor Relations Podcast. Please look out for our next episode 